Hello, and welcome to day seven of A Miserable Year. I'm Anthony Adler, and I'm going to be reading you the whole of Le Miserable. That's the podcast. In today's episode, you not only get chapter seven, Cravat, but you also get the very first book club episode with my co-host Alison Edwards. The quality of the sound recording, unfortunately, isn't the highest, but I hope you enjoy anyway. Le Miserable, Volume 1, Fontine, Book the First, A Just Man, Chapter 7, Cravat. It is here that a fact falls naturally into place which we must not omit, because it is one of the sort which show us best what sort of a man the Bishop of D was. After the destruction of the band of Gaspard Bay, who had infested the gorges of Ulior, one of his lieutenants, Cravat, took refuge in the mountains. He concealed himself for some time with his bandits, the remnant of Gaspard Bay's troop, in the county of Nice. Then he made his way to Piedmont, and suddenly reappeared in France, in the vicinity of Barcelonette. He was first seen at Josier, then at Tulle. He hid himself in the caverns of the Jus de l'Aigle, and thence he descended towards the hamlets and villages through the ravines of Abai and Gobayette. He even pushed as far as Embrun, entered the cathedral one night, and despoiled the sacristy. His highway robberies laid waste the countryside. The gendarmes were set on his track, but in vain. He always escaped. Sometimes he resisted by main force. He was a bold wretch. In the midst of all this terror, the bishop arrived. He was making his circuit to Chastelar. The mayor came to meet him and urged him to retrace his steps. Cravat was in possession of the mountains as far as Arch and beyond. There was danger even with an escort. It merely exposed three or four unfortunate gendarmes to no purpose. Therefore, said the bishop, I intend to go without escort. You do not really mean that, Monseigneur, exclaimed the mayor. I do mean it so thoroughly that I absolutely refuse any gendarmes and shall set out in an hour. Set out? Set out. Alone? Alone. Monseigneur, you will not do that. There exists yonder in the mountains, said the bishop, a tiny community, no bigger than that, which I have not seen for three years. They are my good friends, those gentle and honest shepherds. They own one goat of every thirty that they tend. They make very pretty woolen cords of various colours. And they play the mountain airs on little flutes with six holes. They need to be told of the good God now and then. What would they say to a bishop who was afraid? What would they say if I did not go? But the brigands, Monseigneur! Hold, said the bishop, I must think of that. You are right, I may meet them. They too need to be told of the good God. 
But, Monseigneur, there is a band of them, a flock of wolves. Monsieur le Maire, it may be that it is of this very flock of wolves that Jesus has constituted me the shepherd. Who knows the ways of providence? They will rob you, Monseigneur. I have nothing. They will kill you. An old good man of a priest who passes along mumbling his prayers. Bah, to what purpose? Oh, mon Dieu, what if you should meet them? I should beg alms of them for my poor. Do not go, Monseigneur. In the name of heaven, you are risking your life. Monsieur le maire, said the bishop, is that really all? I am not in the world to guard my own life, but to guard souls. They had to allow him to do as he pleased. He set out, accompanied only by a child who offered to serve as a guide. His obstinacy was bruited about the countryside and caused great consternation. He would take neither his sister nor Madame Megloire. He traversed the mountain on muleback, encountered no one, and arrived safe and sound at the residence of his good friends, the shepherds. He remained there for a fortnight, preaching, administering the sacrament, teaching, exhorting. When the time of his departure approached, he resolved to chant a te diem pontifically. He mentioned it to the curé. But what was to be done? There were no episcopal ornaments. They could only place at his disposal a wretched village sacristy with a few ancient chasubles of threadbare damask adorned with imitation lace. Ah, said the bishop, let us announce our te deum from the pulpit nevertheless, Monsieur le curé. Things will arrange themselves. They instituted a search in the churches of the neighbourhood. All the magnificence of these humble parishes combined would not have sufficed to clothe a chorister of a cathedral properly. They instituted a search in the churches of the neighbourhood. All the magnificence of these humble parishes combined would not have sufficed to clothe the chorister of a cathedral properly. While they were thus embarrassed, a large chest was brought and deposited in the presbytery for the bishop by two unknown horsemen who departed on the instant. The chest was opened. It contained a cope of cloth of gold, a mitre ornamented with diamonds, an archbishop's cross, a magnificent crozier, all the pontifical vestments which had been stolen a month previously from the treasury of Notre-Dame-de-Ambrou. In the chest was a paper on which these words were written, From Cravat to Monseigneur Bienvenu. Did I not say that things would come right of themselves? said the bishop. Then he added with a smile, To him who contents himself with the surplus of a curate, God sends the coat of an archbishop. Monseigneur, murmured the curé, throwing back his head with a smile. God, or the devil. The bishop looked steadily at the curé and repeated with authority, God. When he returned to Chastelard, the people came out to stare at him as a curiosity all along the road. At the priest's house in Chastelard, he rejoined Mademoiselle Baptistine and Madame Maigloire, who were waiting for him, and said to his sister, Well, was I in the right? 
the poor priest went to his poor mountaineers with empty hands, and he returns from them with his hands full. I set out bearing only my faith in God. I have brought back the treasure of a cathedral. That evening, before he went to bed, he said again, Let us never fear robbers nor murderers. Those are dangers from without, petty dangers. Let us fear ourselves. Prejudices are the real robbers. Vices are the real murderers. These great dangers lie within ourselves. What matters it what threatens our head or our purse? Let us think only of that which threatens our soul. Then, turning to his sister, Sister, never a precaution on the part of a priest against his fellow man. That which his fellow does, God permits. Let us confine ourselves to prayer when we think that a danger is approaching us. Let us pray, not for ourselves, but that our brother may not fall into sin on our account. However, such incidents were rare in his life. We relate those of which we know, but generally he passed his life in doing the same things at the same moment. One month of his year resembled one hour of his day. As to what became of the treasure of the Cathedral of Embrun, we should be embarrassed by any inquiry in that direction. It consisted of very handsome things, very tempting things, and things which were very well adapted to be stolen for the benefit of the unfortunate. Stolen, they had already been elsewhere. Half of the adventure was completed. It only remained to impart a new direction to the theft, and to cause it to take a short trip in the direction of the poor. However, we make no assertions on this point. Only a rather obscure note was found among the bishop's papers, which may bear some relation to this matter, and which is couched in these terms. The question is, to decide whether this should be turned over to the cathedral or to the hospital. Headless flames of ancient fire Ceaselessly flow into the mind Crowded monsters, despotic Hello, and welcome to the first book club special edition of A Miserable Year. I'm Alison Edwards. And I'm Anthony Adler. Hi. And we are going to be discussing chapters one to seven, plus the preface of Les Miserables. So primarily what we're doing here is meeting the bishop. We also meet his sister and his housekeeper, Madame Magloire, who is so far the only normal one in the book, and his parishioners, who are all poor and therefore lovely. All rich and snobbish and a bit dreadful. Yes, that is the only possible option. You can't be poor and snobbish or rich and holy, unless you're a bishop in this case, in which case he gives all his money away, so he's poor and holy. Well, the nice thing is we have another 358 chapters in which to meet people who fall outside those current Venn diagram circles, so we'll get there. So, the preface. Now, 
I did a very foolish thing when I decided to start this podcast and thought, oh, I know, I will do my own translation of the preface because that's not going to be hellishly difficult and really tricky. For uh, someone who doesn't speak French, which hasn't stopped you so far. No, no, uh, that hasn't stopped me. But uh, anyone who's written so far will know that my French pronunciation is abysmal and for that I'm truly, truly sorry. Anyway, um, the reason that I retranslated the preface is because Isabel Hapgood's one is really quite difficult to read aloud, um, or at least I found it difficult to read aloud. And as a demonstration for this, I'm going to force Alison to do it at microphone point. So here we are. And if you're ready, Alison, okay, one, two, and three. So long as there shall exist, by virtue of law and custom, decrees of damnation pronounced by society, artificially creating hells amid the civilization of Earth, and adding the element of human fate to divine destiny, so long as the three great problems of the century, the degradation of man through pauperism, the corruption of woman through hunger, the crippling of children through lack of light, are unsolved, so long as social asphyxia is possible in any part of the world, in other words, and with a still wider significance, so long as ignorance and poverty exist on Earth, books of the nature of Les Miserables cannot fail to be of use. Right, so Alison can actually read it well and dramatically, it's just me that can't. That was fab. The good news is, I didn't breathe the whole way through that, so excuse me while I gently reoxygenate my brain while Anton talks for a while. Victor Hugo's not wrong about those three problems, however we phrase them and whatever problems we might find with how they're phrased. That those three things which were problems of the century when he was writing in the 1800s, they're still very much problems now. And the fascinating thing, I think, with this is that, as you will have noticed if you have interacted with any form of popular media over the last, say, year, is that a lot of people are mulling over how terrible the world is currently and how close we are to apocalypse and how wealth gaps and, yes, political corruption and the rule of the few over the many are causing all kinds of social issues. I think the idea that ignorance and poverty exist on Earth is definitely not a strange one. So remembering that as we read through the book will possibly throw some new light on those issues that we come up with. And hopefully by the end of the year, you guys will still agree that, as Victor Hugo suggested, Le Miserable is still a useful book. Now, onto the meat. Or rather, now, onto the meat of the novel. That sounds less sinister. That's, that's better? Is that better? Is there any meat in this bit of the novel, though? I'm pretty sure he's fasting, so it's mostly rye bread and milk and fish. I think when the curé comes, he does get to have some meat. There's a little bit about when... We're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go for chapter one. So, chapter one, Monseigneur Miriel. In this chapter, we get introduced to the bishop, who will then form the central character of, I believe, the next 14 chapters. Alison's pulling a face. It's a great face. It's a really good face for radio. Very expressive. I'm not going to tell you what it looks like. We're just going to listen to her laughing and I'm going to continue to wind her up. This is this is how podcasting works, I understand. Excuse me while I lapse into some authentic Victorian styles of consumption. So in this chapter, we get some brief background for the bishop, who apparently was a real person once upon a time before he lapsed through mysterious circumstances into quite astonishing amounts of uh, piety. Yeah, he was, um, the first portion of his life had been devoted to the world and to gallantry, which could cover quite a lot, I feel. And we do have a little, a few more hints on this later on. One gets the feeling that Victor Hugo doesn't necessarily approve of gallantry, which is a bit sad, but I feel it has its place. 
I thought it was partly there to make the, the bishop a slightly less irksome character, that he hadn't just been a ghastly, saintly child. You may make an excellent point there. He does later refer to himself as an ex-sinner, so we can assume he did have some fun at some stage before he lapsed into fasting and giving away all their worldly goods. I mean, I think he enjoys the fasting and the giving away all his worldly goods. Well, he does. Well, yes, that is a bone of contention we'll get to in a sec, because in Chapter 2, we have possibly the funniest bit of accounts writing that I've ever come across in a novel, which is, I mean, maybe it's in a category of one, but that's fine. The uh, main thing I had noted from Chapter 1 is that he's referred to as uh, his sister, um, who apparently follows him into all this piety, but to a lesser degree, because she's a woman, and therefore frail and prone to sin, the way we are. Uh, but she is referred to as being translucent in a rather Victorian way, because remember this is the era of consumptive chic when ladies were supposed to be pale and interesting. But she also has the beauty of goodness. I'm not sure I've ever seen someone who is simultaneously translucent and saint-like. If you have, do please let me know. And on to chapter two. <laughs> chapter two, where we have some very entertaining and droll and witty accounting. That is apparently a thing. Who knew? Well, I mean, I found it witty and entertaining. Alison, did you... You know me. I just love my lists of figures. They're great. No, it was a very revealing and somewhat sarcastic list of accounts in that rather than just telling us how holy this rather insufferable bishop is, Victor Hugo decides to list everything he does with his money, which caused me to imagine him sort of pacing up and down a study for at least three days, going, find me another good cause. And another one. Ooh, orphanages. We haven't done them yet. Now, I, I actually quite like the bishop, so Alice and I will continue to argue about this over the next two podcasts until we meet some other characters. What I found quite interesting about the way that this accounting is set out is that you start off with a great big sum of 15,000 livres, and then it drops it right down to 100 livres and slowly works up to greater and greater amounts. So we get a sort of interesting progression in terms of the causes that the, the bishop actually values and that he thinks it's important to support, and the extent to which he supports them. And what, we, what we're looking at is a little bit of support for some interesting seminaries and some interesting little theological societies. But most of the causes that the bishop supports are very practical. That is true, and I'm not suggesting that he is not an admirable character. You just don't like him. No, he's not just an admirable character. He is admirable without any character. That's the slightly sad bit. There's, I, I think part of what he was doing with this was to sort of put out not exactly an exemplar of what it is to be a perfect person, but maybe what it would be to be as good as is humanly possible in a life where that is supported. That is a good point. No doubt there were priests who were doing their best with the resources given to them. It is, I think, very deliberately set up as a juxtaposition and to prove that there are elements of status, according to churchmen, which are not necessarily used to their best. Perhaps not. And we do have that delightful letter from a very cross nobleman who shouts down with the Pope towards the end of the letter, etc., etc., which is you know, quite droll and entertaining and was quite fun to read. Yes. Did I have too much fun? Possibly. I think we've possibly exhausted the limits of the Catholic Church for this chapter. What are your other kind of bits that you picked out from the, the following few chapters? The mention of the scaffold, obviously. Some fairly heavy-handed foreshadowing going on there. Um, 
But it's interesting because one of the things that one sees from novels of the period is the idea of the guillotine as an independent creature, uh, as in, for example, the tale of two cities. Madame la guillotine is described as being thirsty, as killing people of her own volition. And the idea of this as a symbol of the revolution of violence, it would have been extremely present to Victor Hugo's readers. They would have remembered the revolution and they would have remembered the extreme fear that came with it for a huge number of people. So to mention the scaffold early on in the novel is to suggest that it is going to deal with the subject of what was at the time fairly current political debate. And the way that he writes about it is particularly evocative and particularly chilling and indeed thrilling. The scaffold is the accomplice of the executioner. It devours, it eats flesh, it drinks blood. The scaffold is a sort of monster fabricated by the judge and the carpenter, a spectre which seems to live with a horrible vitality composed of all the death it has inflicted. Yes. So, um, that's chapter four. Chapter five comes with the delightful benefit of uh, Monseigneur's Bienvenue's outfit. It doesn't really talk about whether he actually smells, though, and I feel this is something maybe we could do justice to, because I think he probably does. It does mention that he uh, wears his wooded purple cloak, which sounds like a fabulous garment, particularly when you add purple socks with sandals. He wears it all year round, including in summer, uh, to cover up the fact that he doesn't replace his cassock as often as he should. Therefore, he has to wear this fancy cloak over the top to hide the holes, presumably. But it says it's rather uncomfortable in summer. So, yes, I think that a certain holy aroma might perhaps precede his presence. I don't have the whole text in front of me, but I do recall that it talks about him having a fabulous hat with three gold tassels as well. And I am a man of many hats, and I would love to have a hat with three gold tassels. So if any of you guys listening happen to be milliners um, and happen to have a large store of antique tassels that you wish to distribute to the needy or the worthy, hit me up. Let me know. And we will attempt to find someone needy or worthy for them. And Anthony is now also doing a face for radio, which you wish you could see. Yeah, I mean, going back, though, to Monsignor Bionbenu's clothing, I think Victor Hugo does reveal something quite interesting about him through this, that we have this gap between his awareness of the importance of appearing to be grand as the bishop and making sure that he has the dignity that that station requires, but also not wanting to actually spend money on cassocks when he could be spending it on something more useful. The bishop's best moments, I feel, come from a certain level of self-awareness. So there is a great chapter where he isn't just being holy, but he's also gently laughing at other people who react to his holiness. Oh, his little raillery, I think they call it. Yes, something like that in a rather sweet and slightly sickening way. Alison is really not a fan. I feel I should defend the bishop at this point. I find the bishop, you know, quite charming. He's quite wry. I gave him a very insufferable voice, which doesn't really help. Um... But I think he does tend to undercut any claims to virtue with a little bit of modesty, which I think is Victor Hugo desperately trying to stop him from being as insufferable as Alison finds him. So, I don't know, presumably you think he failed in that. I think the main point of his modesty comes from the fact that he feels like a desperately unworthy person and he is very aware of what holy is and that he is not achieving it and possibly takes this to levels at which modesty is somewhat unbelievable. 
So his modesty is used as a counterfoil to the people who mock him for his rather exaggerated piety. The episode where he claims that riding on a donkey was out of necessity rather than vanity did ring a little hollow even to me, and I'm not nearly as anti-clerical as Alison seems to be today. Yes, I feel that um, if he were proud of his own piety, he really would be an insufferable character, even for you. Uh, you mean it because I am already an insufferable character and therefore have some sympathy with others? <laughs> or possibly because then he would be one of the sort of churchmen that never actually make any impact on their parishioners because they are so clearly out of this world that they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, note the lack of denial there about whether I am an entirely insufferable character. But also, I think one of the things that Victor Hugo is really trying very hard to stress here is the material good that the bishop does. So when he talks about the dimensions of the hospital and the dimensions of the palace, and when he talks about how the bishop lives, and when he talks about exactly what the bishop spends his money on, it's not just because detail is you know, an adornment to the novel. It's also because it lays down the very practical bedrock of what the bishop does in his practice as a bishop and i think that's that's something that we're going to build on more and more as we go through the novel this idea that actually understanding the material circumstances of people's lives tells you a lot about how not how moral they are i suppose but the context of their moral decisions yes and leaving aside the personal appeal of the bishop's character for a minute it is deeply satisfying to have someone in this novel point out that it is in fact ridiculous that the church, as the wealthy institution, gets this huge palace and vast amounts of resources and the very large numbers of people who actually acquire these resources don't get access to them. So he, without any fuss or demanding reward, he switches this over. And well, obviously in real life, it's not necessarily that simple. It's still very important to highlight that disparity, I think, particularly in the context of what comes later in the novel. Here we get the bit where the bishop really sort of shows himself up i thought and we also get the introduction of a couple of very important objects i just want to highlight i'm not going to really go into detail about why they're important i just wanted to make sure that you all notice that they exist so um this was the sole luxury which the bishop permitted he said that takes nothing from the poor it must be confessed however that he still retained from his former possessions six silver knives and forks and a soup ladle which Madame Magloire contemplated every day with delight, as they glistened splendidly upon the coarse linen cloth. And since we are now painting the Bishop of D, as he was in reality, we must add that he had said more than once, I find it difficult to renounce eating from silver dishes. To this silverware must be added two large candlesticks of massive silver, which he had inherited from a great aunt. These candlesticks held two wax candles, and usually figured on the Bishop's chimney-piece. When he had anyone to dinner, Madame Magloire lighted the two candles and set the candlesticks on the table. I'm not going to say anything about why those objects are important, but just, you know, lodge that in your memory. Make sure you know the bishop has them, that he keeps them at home, and that he thinks very, very highly of his silver cutlery. Outside the context of the plot, this would be slightly implausible in the idea that he never changes his clothes or permits anyone to buy new furniture or really has any luxury whatsoever including mostly food but okay implausible attachment to metal objects i don't know i quite liked it though because we've got someone who we know had a very privileged upbringing and he had a very nice time as a young man when he was devoting himself to gallantry 
it's quite revealing that there is one luxury from the bishop's past life when he was a young man, before his wife died, before the revolution, there is something that he still has from that time that he clings to. And there is some vestige of his old life that he still, despite maybe what he thinks of as his moral duties, that he still can't quite give up. And again, I think it, it humanises him a little bit, but then I'm more predisposed to sympathy towards him than Alison is, so that's fine. Alison just hates bishops. That's the generalisation, and I object. I only hate implausible fictional bishops. And I don't oh. even really hate them. They're just annoying. Right, so the the last chapter of our week um, is surprisingly enough chapter seven with the wonderful name cravat and this is not actually about the bishop's outfit sadly much as i love the bishop's purple cloak and maybe he wore a cravat as well who knew would it have been a purple cravat because i'm here for that i think we should make that take off as a new fashion trend guys great anyway we, so we have cravat who is um a brigand and we think this might be an exciting episode full of incident and daring do and all Ad kinds of um, bloodshed and impiety that were denied us for the first six chapters and a rip-roaring adventure there might even be gallantry, who knows well we know because we've read it is there any adventure, rip-roaring daring do or indeed gallantry of course not, it's about the bishop fair, yeah this is a good chance for the bishop to display how very unattached he is to his own personal safety and the demands of the flesh and to set off with only a small child, which sounds rather irresponsible to me, into the mountains to visit a remote community and preach the word of God and probably get ambushed by this community of brigands led by a cravat. He's not a cravat, but presumably he does wear one. Yes, but imagine a cravat running around on a horse, stealing goods. It would be, I mean, if you got highway robbed by a cravat, that would be a great story and also a little bit spacey. A little bit spacey. So the upshot of this exciting adventure that the bishop has with the cravat is that rather than being robbed he finds himself through his wonderful reputation for piety receiving back the chest full of objects which had been robbed from a cathedral in the ultimate act of impiety because what can you do that's possibly worse to a church than take away a gold cross and he is given a chest containing all these fabulous riches from the local cathedral so that he can perform a proper service for the local people who are going to be considerably impressed by shows of wealth and realise that the church is the one true way. Again, I think that's a little harsh because what he then does is he sells those things on and then spends the money on good works. We are left to assume in a rather um, roundabout kind of way since it's probably not done to steal from the church, but since the bishop wasn't the one doing the stealing, it's totally okay. Thank you.